Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your week so far, and it's great to be back on the air again. And here we are, um, still in uh, part three of I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation. In this episode, we're going to be uh, discussing about Lydia Broadnax being George Wythe's uh, personal servant, or let alone his uh, freed personal servant. While, yes, we're going to learn um, some uh, very uh, critical essentials about Mrs. Broad about Miss Broadnax, we are also going to learn about um, really not so much about her entire life, but what I can say is we're going to that the focus will be on the settings that uh, Richmond, as as Virginia's new capital, has evolved into. Uh, most notably, uh, when George With himself moves to uh, Richmond. Of course, Lydia herself comes with him to Richmond and how she um, witnesses changes that are for the good and for the not so good. Although some things that will be discussed have been in place for some time. However, sometimes it does take tragedies not sometimes, but I think it's fair to say that in many circumstances there are unforeseen uh, incidents that do occur where those who survive such un such um, terrible, um, tragic circumstances are often left to um, wonder, you know, number one, why did I survive? But number two, why was my side of the story left behind when I had something that I... Um, could uh, share with the greater public that um, could have made a difference. But what I also can tell you all is this, is that um, Lydia Broadnax, uh, for one, is a very well-respected woman, not just by people of her race, but by many in the white community. So if I uh, keep on talking like this, I might as well give away other stuff that um, really won't be as productive in terms of my addressing the questions to you all, my audience. So here we go with uh, our first uh, lead-off question for this uh, podcast episode. Was Lydia Broadnax, George Wythe's freed personal servant, the prosecution's last best hope in finding George Wythe Sweeney guilty of murder? Yes. There is a two-part approach to this. For starters, she had been an enslaved person in the Wythe household for a number of years, but by 1787, George Wythe took it upon himself to free her. Now, what's unique about 1787 is that, for one, that's the same year that the uh, Constitution uh, was signed. And while George Wythe was a delegate in Philadelphia to the convention, he left early. He, but the reason for his leaving early was not because he was bored. He would have stayed had, had it not been for an unfortunate circumstance. His wife, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth Talia Farrow with, with, had not been well for the last um, few years of her life. And her condition had taken a nasty turn for the worse, where she sadly uh, lost her um, fight with the illness that she was uh, battling. 
And so obviously George Wythe was very um, emotionally distraught by her uh, passing. But in the midst of uh, un an unfortunate circumstance, uh, George, George Wythe does take it upon himself in that same year to free Lydia Broadnax. After all, she had been a faithful servant to Mr. Wythe, most notably being his personal servant for the last 20 years of his life, from 1787 on to 1806. And as I said earlier, she was very well respected and trusted by um, Richmond, uh, by the greater society of Richmond, not just uh, within um, her race, that is of African American, uh, she was also well-respected and trusted by many uh, white Richmonders. I think it's very fair to say that um, when I say white Richmonders, I say those who lived in Shaco Hill and those who lived um, in the heart of uh, Richmond. After all, you know, remember, folks, you know, you either live in the heart of Richmond or in Shaco Hill. But the bottom line is this, is that Mrs. to be uh, George Wythe's um, personal servant given that uh, Miss Broadnax is his cook, his personal cook. She is pretty much personal everything to Mr. Wythe. So to be able to have this title is not something that's taken lightly. But she um, really does um, enjoy looking after him. She wants what's best for him. And I think that's very um, admirable. And uh, when you want what's best for someone else, it obviously comes with earning trust and respect, and not only has she won Mr. Wythe's trust, but she's also won the trust of the greater community. At least that's what we um, are hoping to be the case, especially now that we have a trial in play. I mean, we certainly would hope that, okay, if she survived the uh, poisoning, you know, yes, George Wythe lived for two weeks. Michael Brown only lived a week, but Lydia Broadnax survived. So that should tell us something right there, folks. Hey, if she survived, she's got to have a lot of good um, evidence that will go against George Wythe Sweeney. Now, I can tell you this much. I'm sure most of you are wondering, how old is she by this point in time? Well, historians know that she was born in the early 1740s, probably around 1742 at best. So by the time she earns her... Um, her freedom, or George Wythe himself frees her, she's probably about 45 years of age. So by the time George Wythe is poisoned, Miss Broadnax is in her, um, close to her being in her mid-60s. Miss Lydia Broadnax herself had every reason to assume George Wythe Sweeney, for starters, had poured arsenic out of a, a piece of white paper into the coffee, she also confirmed that uh, she saw Sweeney read Wythe's will. After all, you know, George Wythe's will stated that if Sweeney himself had died before Lydia and uh, Michael Brown, that Lydia and Michael Brown would be entitled to their share of his estate. Obviously, that made George Wythe Sweeney very uncomfortable and unhappy. Probably didn't like the fact that his great uncle had taken some uh, stances on against slavery that, in the eyes of others, were not very um, popular. Um, didn't like the fact that, you know, George Wythe all of a sudden has become very anti-slavery and that he is the leading abolitionist voice in Virginia 
right before his um, untimely death. Lydia Broadnex also had known for some time that Sweeney had stolen many rare valuables of George Wythe's, most, most notably rare books that would have uh, been given to Thomas Jefferson, but unfortunately Sweeney took those books and used them to pay off gambling debts. And then, you know, last but not least, Lydia Broadnex knew that uh, he had been forging checks in his name. Now, of course, I'm sure some of you are thinking, how come she couldn't have stopped him? Well, you know, we can't always pin the blame on one person alone, but at the same time, uh, Lydia Broadnax knew that Mr. Wythe had confronted his grandnephew on uh, more than one occasion, so it's not like, you know, she just sat back and said, well, I'll let uh, Mr. Wythe take care of the problem. She herself did confront uh, Sweeney about uh, some of the, what do you call it, personal issues, uh, behavioral problems, but obviously he's not uh, going to listen to anything that she has to say either. After all, this is a very uh, troubled individual who um, has no respect for boundaries, has no respect really for anything. Lydia Broadnax herself was well known by everyone involved in the Sweeney trial. So basically, you know, Philip Norburn Nicholas, the lead prosecutor, knows her very well. Mayor William Duvall, who has taken the stand, Mayor of Richmond, I mean, he's he listened to what uh, Miss Broadnax had to say. And of course, for the uh, defense, William Wirt, Edmund Randolph, they know her. So basically, uh, Lydia Broadnax is not a stranger to anybody in the uh, Richmond community. So um, I'm going to uh, shift gears here, but what I'm going to be talking about next does relate to to what Lydia Broadnax herself would have uh, witnessed in day-to-day -day life in Richmond. You know, too often when we uh, think of uh, slavery, we often think of uh, slavery that uh, existed on uh, the plantations. However, Bruce Chadwick, in his book, I Am Murdered, George Wythe, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation, has revealed to the audience that there was more than one type of slavery which existed in Richmond, Virginia. Well, what else would there be besides plantation slavery? How about city slavery? What's different about city slavery versus plantation slavery? Well, for one, plantation slavery revolved around the farm, where the slaves were housed, fed, and employed, all in one place. On the other hand, city slavery required slaves to be housed in town and fed wherever food was available to working in multiple places. City slavery required slaves being hired from their owners. Employers wanted to profit from their work. So in other words, city slaves may have one time worked on a plantation, but you could say to a degree that they're being outsourced to go work elsewhere for a certain period of time before, say, returning back to their uh, original uh, settings. Now, Richmond is home to a variety of unique um, businesses. Richmond is home to shipyards. After all, ships are coming in and out of the James River, going to uh, different markets, 
along the East Coast of the United States, as well as to uh, foreign markets around the world. Of course, one of the big um, importers, as well as exporters, that come into Richmond are, is uh, coffee beans, most notably from Brazil. And of course, many immigrants who are coming into who are coming into Richmond are uh, also coming in uh, are coming from Brazil. So obviously, that connection is very uh, big, nonetheless, to say the least. We also have shipyards that are big. After all, you know, we've got to build ships, and it's more than just building ships. You got to you've got your rope makers, your caulkers. You've got um, you know anybody who. Um, has a specialty trade that involves uh, building ships uh, is going to be of uh, vital use. You've got manufacturing mills, along with uh, being surrounded by tobacco plantations that are not far from um, port entries within uh, the confines of the James River. So this increase in job growth is great, but it also meant greater demand for slave labor within the city confines. However, uh, city slavery is far more unique than plantation slavery. How so? City slavery also equates to more freedom. And at the end of a workday, slaves could dine at restaurants. They could go shopping. They could visit taverns. They could gamble. City slaves enjoyed the same freedoms as their white citizens did. Now talk about a huge advantage right there, folks. Could employers, here's another question, folks, could employers hire slaves to work when business was good as well as releasing them when times weren't so good? Yes, this was especially prevalent within the tobacco industry when harvests were poor. Slaves were released to where companies would save large sums of money. Now, I know on one hand that sounds unfortunate, um, but at the same time, you know, this is a practice that even exists in today's time where companies will let go of people when, when business isn't good. And sometimes a way to save money is to let go of people um, because if you keep people on longer and business still isn't good, then one has to say to themselves, where does the line draw in order to... Um, save money long term. I mean, I'm not an economist, but that's basically my 101 interpretation of this is that, yes, it's unfortunate when um, when times weren't good. And I mentioned earlier about um, when the tobacco industry experiencing harvests that were poor. We must keep in mind, folks, that tobacco, for one, is a very intense uh, crop to uh, grow and harvest. There's a lot of labor involved with it, and tobacco is uh, one of those products that does deplete the soil over time. We do know that uh, when the English uh, finally uh, found the right uh, product to grow, or let alone farm commodity to grow when they first, um, in the years after arriving to Jamestown, they found that uh, tobacco was finally that right product they could grow. And what they learned was that after about three harvests, or three plantings rather, I should say, after the third planting, the soil was no longer um, useful or let alone resourceful. So what, what ends up happening? Well, you've got to go find other um, land tracts to clear to plant new um, 
crops or not so much new crops, but new uh, plantings for tobacco, which did lead to um, conflicts with Indian tribes over um, land um, ownership. After all, you know, the Indians did grow tobacco, but they weren't addicted to it like the Europeans or the English were. So that's really where your tobacco wars came into play. The Indians grew tobacco, but they used it more so for ceremonial purposes, whereas the English were so heavily dependent upon tobacco that it was really a way of life. In other words, tobacco could be used to pay off debts. Uh, it was used uh, for uh, wedding ceremonial uh, purposes as a means to for paying the minister who would perform the wedding uh, service. Uh, tobacco, yes, was shipped to England where its demand was always in need. But when you didn't have a good harvest, which could have been brought on by a bad drought, that's when uh, things were not so good. And by the early 19th century, you know, you've got a um, tobacco, the tobacco industry itself is so um, prevalent in Richmond that when business doesn't go well because of bad harvests, then yes, you probably are going to have to lay people off. Now, you know, while I think it's pretty amazing, even when I read this book two years ago and rereading uh, what's been necessary in sharing uh, the podcast sessions with you all, my listeners, I was really blown away at just how beneficial slaves, how, what do you call it, how beneficial uh, slaves themselves were in city life, but how they were accepted by uh, white citizens within the city. The fact that they're, that it was okay for everyone to dine at the restaurants, go shopping, visit taverns. That Now, on the other hand, it didn't always mean everything was perfect. But the bottom line is, is that they're, um, every, everybody coexisted uh, for the most part. Now, there are those in Richmond at this time who are becoming very leery and skeptical. They are beginning to see what's called a, di a diverse society. Not just so much of immigrants coming into Richmond, but whites and blacks actually coexisting together with one another to where um, it's, it's becoming an ever-growing norm. So many Richmond leaders feared that giving slaves money along with excessive freedoms would over time lead to rebellion against the slave system itself. And this would also mean that slaves, especially those living on the plantations, would be wanting to seek the same freedoms as white men had. What were the leading jobs or let alone trades trade professions for city slaves to have whom were living in the heart of uh, Richmond. The professions ranged from being um, in uh, what's called the blacksmith profession, iron makers, tailors, rope walks, that is those who make riggings for ships, woodcutters, sail repairs, shipping maintenance workers to tobacco processors and bailers, well, you know, I mentioned earlier about how Richmond was home to shipyards. After all, um, you know, Richmond's a big uh, port city all of a sudden. Now we got, you know, ships coming in left and right uh, from 
various um, cities from around the world and cities up and down the East Coast. You know, we do need to have people employed um, to do the various jobs in order to ensure that the ships um, meet their um, deadlines on time. In other words, you know, ships have to, you know, transport um, different commodities uh, from, you know, point A to point B. And they've also got to get them to other parts of the world where there's a greater demand. So, you know, I would think that um, that there would be a broad, diverse group of people working in these professions. But, folks, let me point this out to you now. The vast majority of the people working in the jobs is blacksmiths, iron makers, tailors, woodcutters, sail repairs, shipping maintenance workers, tobacco processors, bailers. I know I mentioned it all a moment ago, but the reason I say it again is because the people who are employed in these jobs are freed blacks, or let alone, I should say, freed African Americans. Somebody's got to do the work, and these people, folks, are taking great pride in their work. And I will admit to you that they are being rewarded for their work as well. They are getting anywhere from 3 to $10 bonuses. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but we must keep in mind, in the early 19th century, if you got a bonus that was 3 to $10, a price range of 3 to $10, that was a big deal. The tobacco industry was the biggest single employer of city slaves in Richmond. And, and as a matter of fact, in the late 1790s, the city was home to three processing houses which employed 22 slave workers. Well, we all should know that 7 times 3 is 21, so if we take 22 into 3, or 3 divided into 22, that's about um, 7.3 or close to, you know, 7 to 8 slaves working at, um, per, at per each... Um, processing house. The reason for why more slaves were employed in Richmond was due to free whites or mainly immigrants, or should I say mainly immigrant workers not wanting to do the hard work period. And by 1806, slaves alone comprised one-third to two-third of mixed-race working population in Richmond. So that's anywhere from 33 to 67% of the mix of the uh, working population. Two-thirds of city slaves worked in um, shipping, tobacco, to the milling industries, being men. So think about this, folks. Uh, those who worked in tobacco to milling industries and shipping were uh, male um, male freed slaves, and the employers went as far as providing medical care where slaves themselves got sent to city doctors for treatment. Now, that, you talk about some nice benefits, folks. These, um, these freed slaves are not being taken advantage of. I can honestly say that they are being looked after. You know, the fact that so many of them are willing to do the jobs that immigrant workers don't want to do, or let alone free whites. One of the reasons why many free white people, or let alone just whites in general, don't want to work is because they don't like the wages they're currently being paid under, and they're just not satisfied with the current status quo. You know, sure, we all can, you know, from time to time, 
not be satisfied with the current status quo, but sometimes um, situations do arise where you may have no other choice but to, um, you know, this could be controversial, but sometimes we may have no other choice but to suck up something and say, okay, well, yes, deep down I might not like what's going on, I probably should still be thankful that I have a job. After all, I do not only do I need to support myself, but if I have a family, I have to think about my family as well. After all, you know, my family has to eat. I can't just sit around and um, make excuses and go around and find fault with the rest of the world when sometimes maybe the fault can lie with me as the individual. So we do have a crisis here now, folks. You know, immigrants are coming to Richmond left and right but a fair number of them don't want to do the hard work. So you almost have to ask yourself, why are you even coming to America if you're wanting to look for a better life? Things like this do happen, folks. Um, you know, just because one comes to another country, it doesn't mean that they've automatically found their, their uh, true dream, or in this case, the American dream. Now, here's a very important uh, question of uh, historical significance here. Before I get to the question, I think it is fair to say that even Lydia Broadnax herself has seen um, freed um, people of her race benefit tremendously from uh, working um, in settings where their work is valued and where if they are hurt on the job, they um, the employers are providing medical care where Slaves are getting uh, good medical treatment by city doctors. And who knows, maybe it's fair to say that Drs. James McClurg, um, Dr. James McCall, and Dr. William Fauci, you know, I, I thought those that that medical trio knew how to uh, perform an autopsy. I thought they knew how to um, do all the routine procedures that not so much are just involved in an autopsy, but I thought they would have um, taken greater concern in George Wythe's life. I would have thought that maybe they would have wanted to have helped Mr. Wythe to where if they had helped him a lot sooner, that is, if they had performed an operation on him before he even died, he might still be alive, folks. And if that were the case, if George Wythe had survived, don't think for one second that he would have had enough courage and strength to have um, been present at his, at his grandnephew's trial and testified against him. One would have only hoped. But in the meantime, Lydia Broadnecks has seen a lot of uh, good strides being made. However, we would certainly hope, though, that all the good strides that have been made would uh, last long term, but sometimes uh, good strides and progress, sadly, doesn't always last forever. As for the Virginia legislature, did the Virginia legislature prohibit masters from freeing their slaves after 1723? Yes, but ironically the opposite happened where the population of freed blacks soared to where by 1806 more than 2,000 resided in Richmond. And I will tell you this folks, when you go to Colonial Williamsburg, interpreters there will tell you this, that when a, when a master free, the only way a master could free his or her, free his or her slave, usually in the case with a, a man being the head slave owner, he had to go before the uh, House of Burgesses and he had to um, state 
good compelling reasons for why his for why one or two slaves in particular should be freed and usually they had to perform uh, significant acts of meritorial service in other words they had to go above uh, the line of duty uh, or I should say the call of duty where it could have off in some cases it could have meant maybe saving uh, the master's life maybe saving his children's lives uh, it had to be something that was very courageous perhaps like the equivalent of uh, getting a um, a purple heart um, medal or um, or a bronze uh, medal for um, sacrificing one's life that kind of thing so while these um, acts of um, what we call manumission or um, freeing um, slaves on a individual case-by-case -case basis did occur they just couldn't happen um, on the master's um, accords uh, the master himself had to go before the house of burgesses to make this request and then the burgesses themselves would take a vote on it and if it was approved then the master himself would be allowed to free his slave but he obviously had to also uh, provide um, he had to make sure that once his her her slave or or x number of slaves were freed that they would be uh, housed somewhere um, nearby where um, they would have um, adequate shelter adequate clothing um, a suitable place of employment uh, most likely in town basically they need they were still watched but watched for the right reasons but the bottom line is is that uh, while yes there was a law that was passed um, prohibiting masters from freeing their slaves after 1723 the opposite happens pretty quickly so you know yes sometimes you have laws on the books but that doesn't always mean that the laws themselves um, will either get abided by or can be successfully enforced now industries ranging from uh, tobacco and mill based uh, jobs comprise the greatest concentration of mixed race workforce where blacks and whites worked side by side in the early years of the 19th century and by the late 1850s or let alone by the 1850s rather I should say Richmond was the nation's largest manufacturer of tobacco that shouldn't come as a surprise it was second in flour milling to being in the top five in iron production now there is a place in Richmond I haven't been back there in years but I remember going there um, a fair number of times when I was uh, in between junior high and high school called Tredegar Iron Works and it's probably very fair to say that um, given that Richmond was in the top five in iron production that uh, Tredegar Iron Works obviously was one of um, a handful of iron uh, production companies that um, helped Richmond get into the top five of that category and I do believe it's fair to say that city slaves were better tended to along with having uh, greater confidence and respect uh, not only amongst um, themselves but respect uh, from from others in the community most notably um, whites uh, white Richmonders this also included privileges that plantation slaves could only dream of having city slaves often congregated with whites at racetracks taverns to living next door to one another in boarding houses along Richmond's warehouse district on the James Rivers northern shore 
What I find amazing about all this, folks, is that this was a very, very unique, diverse mixture of peoples, of multiple, um, uh, what you call ethnic diversity, or um, it was a very diverse mixture, nonetheless, but it was the most socially and racially mixed of any city in the United States prior to the Civil War. You know, I never thought about that until I read the book two years ago and then rereading it now just made me appreciate what, what did go on at the time. While, yes, there, it may not have been 100% perfect, but knowing that, hey, there was a period of time right before Mr. Wythe passed away where even Mr. Wythe himself saw whites and blacks working together, getting along with one another, after all, George Wythe um, had a change in heart with slavery towards the end of his time in Williamsburg. He felt that the institution itself, over time, needed to be abolished, but yet he wasn't afraid to speak his mind as he saw just how evil of an institution it was. After all, his mother was the one whom, advoc whom encouraged him to advocate for those who were less fortunate who often, who more often than not were not able to have a voice in the government, most notably slaves. George Wythe, as I may have mentioned from a previous podcast, um, during his time on the Chancery Court, oft, many of times sided with slaves. So the bottom line is this, folks, is that George Wythe uh, was not afraid to take, some, to take stands on issues that were very sensitive and I do hate to say this, but I do believe that Mr. Wythe's death could have been, yes, he was poisoned, as we all know, by arsenic, but I do believe that perhaps the medical trio and others did not like what he stood for when it came to being against slavery. And as crazy as it might sound, maybe the medical trio didn't want to go above and beyond to do what was required on their end to either to not only have uh, tried to have saved his life, but to get to the true root of um, what really caused his death. All in the name of taking on an issue that he knew wasn't right, whereas everybody else, like the medical trio, probably just sat back and said, well, um, given our high-profile positions in the community, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, so we're just going to... Um, leave things the way it is and just say that Mr. Wythe uh, died from um, internal problems like black bile buildup to an inflamed stomach. And um, he, the man basically just croaked because of how old he was. No, folks, um, he was a victim from within, but sadly a, a victim at the expense of other people's ignorance. And when we get closer to the end of this uh, podcast, I will mention a little bit more about the ignorance part. Now, uh, given the success city slaves enjoyed economically and socially in Richmond as the 18th century drew to a close, was there a sector of white society whom feared losing control? Absolutely. Most notably, the slaveholders or slave owners whom viewed unregulated freedoms into a mixed, diverse society, they saw this as an enormous threat. 
Well, I think it's fair to say, for one, they, for all we know, maybe the slave owners feared that the um, freed blacks would um, would um, get whites whom were not slave owners, just everyday um, white people living in uh, the heart of Richmond. They were probably fear- fearful that the uh, mixture of the races would come together and perhaps lead a rebellion to try to overthrow the existing institution of slavery itself. After all, it is probably very fair to say that, like George With himself, that there probably were a handful of other um, white Richmonders in Richmond, you know, just everyday average Joe people, whom were, whom took um, a lot of, um, whom were anti-slavery people. In other words, they would have um, been the type to have empathized and shown compassion for um, those whom had been held in bondage, held against their own will, to be uh, forced to work into an institution that had no hope for them, that w- to where their voice would someday be heard. Now, come 1798, new laws were put into play restricting the freedom of African Americans in Richmond. And how ironic, in 1798, that's the same year that Congress, under um, President John Adams' leadership, being that of the Federalists, um, passed the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts. And I find that um, a lot of the law, the new laws that um, that the state of Virginia put into play regarding the restriction, restriction of uh, freedoms of African Americans in Richmond were somewhat similar to what the Sedition Act itself imposed upon uh, people whom were um, opposed to um, governmental views, whom were uh, whom spoke out against the government. So basically, here we go, folks. Um, there were restrictions ranged from blacks no longer hiring themselves out to employers, which also included being barred from race tracks to um, gaming houses, as well as not gathering in large groups to making political speeches that criticized city and state government along at the national level. That's where I see the biggest similarity to a state law versus what the Sedition Act has done. The Sedition Act made it a crime for anyone to question the government. After all, folks, isn't that a violation of free speech? I mean, people do have a right to express their opposition at... um, at laws that they find are unjust and unfair. They also have a right to express their um, opposition to leaders whom they feel are not representing them properly. Are these, um, let, are these leaders in Richmond this fearful that if, um, if a small group of African Americans make political speeches that this could incite a rebellion? Perhaps they are afraid, but at the same time, I would like to believe that they've rushed to judgment, but at the same time, you know, but at the same time, this is the way um, people were thinking, and there's more to what, uh, there's more to behind to what they were thinking is based off of what I will be telling you all next. Was Richmond immune to uprisings, or let alone slave rebellions? No. Between 1800 and 1806, there were at least six attempted uprisings, and while none of them succeeded, the first one from the year 1800 
that became known as Gabriel's Rebellion almost prevailed had it not been for Mother Nature's interference. In other words, the night that the rebellion was supposed to occur, a big rainstorm came along to where um, the rain itself washed, um, washed out the roads to where the roads became muddy. The um, conspirators were to gather at a particular point, and by the time they got there, their plot was foiled. In other words, the slave, um, slave owners and other members um, whom, whom were fearful, most notably community leaders, uh, were there to break up the, uh, the um, would-be uh, foiled, um, or would-be plot, rather, I should say. But how the um, slave owners themselves found out about this was through uh, two slaves whom turned their back on Gabriel, turned against him, they advised their master ahead of time before the inevitable had potential to take place. So there you have it, folks. Um, you know, sometimes it's easy to assume that um, that one race foiled the plot, but it turns out that um, there were those from within the African American race who um, who actually foiled it to where um, a widespread rebellion or insurrection that would have taken place uh, would have had disastrous consequences for all of Richmond. As a matter of fact, I can tell you right now that uh, Gabriel's rebellion would have also involved um, assassinating Governor James Monroe, who was governor of Virginia at this time, folks, in 1800, six years before George Wythe dies. The only people who would have been spared, believe it or not, were uh, Methodists, Baptists, and Quakers in terms of religious sect. And how so? Because they were the ones who had the greater, the greater level of compassion towards those whom were enslaved, those whom were bonded, um, in bondage against their own will. So therefore, if anybody who was Anglican or let alone an Episcopalian, they were frowned upon because... Um, their religion was still viewed as uh, mighty to everyone else's. Now, in the aftermath of the quashed or foiled rebellions, all slaves were required to carry their passes 24 hours a day, while freed slaves had to carry proof of freedom documentation at all times. Blacks could not walk near the state capitol building or city hall without permission from a white official. So there you have it, folks. They have to have permission just to be near the state capitol building. There again, they are this afraid of a rebellion or an insurrection that could take place at any given time. New laws also restricted interactions between blacks and whites. White people were barred from teaching adult slaves how to read, write, along with performing math problems, as well as being prohibited from selling or purchasing goods from slaves. Gosh, you know, um, think about this. You know, as I said earlier, uh, you know, slaves were working on, on the shipyards. They were working um, in the tobacco um, processing plants, um, milling stations. Don't you think you're going to need some math? After all, math is an everyday skill. I mean, we're, all of us are using some form of math day in and day out. 
They've got to be able to find ways to solve problems, you know, especially if, you know, they may not be the head engineers for building a ship, but they would need to know exactly like, you know, for example, how much rope would be needed um, because if they don't, if they can't figure out how much rope is needed for a ship, then um, how are they going to solve that problem? In other words, yes, you can turn to someone else for help, but sometimes others above you may not always be there to assist you. So I see this as a big infringement on um, on uh, what you call um, not just academical independence, but everyday life independent skills. Although many people were shaken up by Gabriel's would-be revolt, which got foiled, did many of Richmond's business owners ignore the new laws and restrictions? Yes. And I would say that, not trying to sound rebellious, folks, but I also need to put myself in the shoes of the people whom are impacted during this uh, time. White business owners in Richmond were heavily dependent upon enslaved and freed black populations that represented a large percentage of their income. However, once in a while, someone like a tavern owner might have gotten arrested, convicted to being fined small amounts for violating the new slave laws. Tavern owners, their income far exceeded a handful of, of a few small fines. Now, here's the irony to this, folks. If we... if if they decided to shut down every white person's business in Richmond, the city of Richmond might as well become a ghost town. Okay, so you may not like the fact that that um, white business owners are catering to a broader diversity of people, but hey, they have they've got to they've got to stay open, folks. They have to be open for business. I mean, they can't just confine all their resources to one race. I mean, they are more than willing to open their doors to both blacks and whites. After all, they know that the vast majority of the workforce is this freed African-American population, about between one-third to two-thirds. So the only way to um, ensure that they can generate revenue on their end is to invite these people into their places of um of business. After all, they are entitled to. Since Richmond's white business owners refused to obey all new laws, what did city and state officials do next that they themselves had supreme control over? This right here, folks, pertains to the dilemma that Lydia Broadnax will be stuck with. And it's not a pleasant one, folks. I, I feel for Miss Broadnecks because ultimately um, this is a situation that I believe many of us have been dreading because we are wanting to know, can the truth get revealed? Can, can something be done to punish George with Sweeney because, given the fact that he killed his beloved, well, I don't know if it was his beloved great uncle, because if it was truly his beloved great uncle, he never would have been so, um, what do you call it, so vindicative towards him. Well, the city and state officials had supreme control over the legal system, whereas the people themselves had no authority to change it on their end. 
So yes, the white business owners can uh, violate the laws all they want, but they have no authority to change the legal system. Sadly, for Lydia Broadnecks, George, being George With's personal servant for 20 years, we get caught in the crossfires of a system where race itself determined whom could and could not testify against someone else within a court of law. While Lydia herself knew she had everything to give, which would have rendered a guilty verdict, the defense, being led by none other, none other than Mr. William Wirt and Mr. Edmund Randolph, were not in any state of hesitation, or, or let alone in a state of, um, of grave concerns. On one hand, I, maybe I should wait and tell you all this in the next podcast, but I probably need to just tell you all now, so that if by telling you all now, we will get a better understanding when I'm back on the air again next. Miss Broadnecks won't be allowed to testify, folks. There are rules on the book that have been around for a long time prohibiting slaves from testifying against um, whites. When I read this book, I, for the first time, I, said, I thought to myself after I read that, I had known about about some of these laws from having visited Colonial Williamsburg so many times, but I thought to myself, couldn't there have been an exception? After all, Miss Broadnecks was well respected by both blacks and whites in Richmond. She didn't have any enemies. After all, she survived a, a horrific um, incident that, in the eyes of others, it was a miracle she even survived. But couldn't there have been an exception here that would have said, okay, Miss Broadnecks did tell us the truth, and she hasn't caused any um, problems to the community. So why don't, maybe there should be an exception. After all, she's performed some meritorious, she's performed meritorial uh, acts of service. She has looked after George with. She has not stolen from him. She has not once taken advantage of him. She, she revered him. She even went as far as saying that she thoroughly enjoyed looking after him in his, in his what you call sunset years of life. She had seen him through the darkest of times when his wife, Elizabeth, of nearly 32 years died. He had a hard time going on with life after her passing, and that's why moving to Richmond after he freed her um, a few years uh, before was the best thing for him, to get away and start a new life. I can't imagine being in Miss Broadnax's shoes, but I often wonder this. If someone were to ask me, uh, Kirk, if you had been alive in the 18th century, around the time that Thomas Jefferson, George Wythe, and Edmund Pendleton went about reforming all of the, um, the codes, the legal codes that were necessary. If you were a member of the um, New Virginia General Assembly, because remember by the time 1775 rolls around, the House of Burgesses has been dissolved by Lord Dunmore, 
but there is a new name. The House of, what we might think of now as the House of Delegates, but the General Assembly. If I was a legislator, of course, this is easier said than done, but knowing what I know, I'm just going to use a hypothetical situation here, folks. What would I have proposed that could have made a difference for Miss Broadnecks? I would have proposed legislation that would have said, hey, while yes, we may not be able to radically change the law on the books that says that would keep a slave from not from uh, te- from not being able to testify against a white person i would say that i would introduce a, a rider that is an attached provision stating that that there mu- that there ought to be an exception where the slave him or herself has has been faithful to a family for x number of years and has proven to uh, have performed meritorial acts of service to where he or she ought to be allowed to testify against someone else of the opposite race. That's what I would have proposed. Of course, the bigger question would have been, would it have passed? I don't know. But that's how I feel about this, because Lydia Broadnacks got got screwed. George Wythe got screwed too. But as time is coming to a near end on this uh, podcast episode, I want us all to think long and hard about um, about this time frame and how um, one of our founding fathers did not get the justice he deserved. Basically, his grandnephew got away scot-free on a legal on a technicality all in the name folks of slaves not being able to testify in court against a white person yes a white person could testify on their behalf but who's to say that maybe the white person's testimony would be 100% accurate you know we're faced with a lot of issues even today with all that's going on in the world and even in the United States I often wonder what um, Lydia Broadnax would be thinking of our society in today's time. I often wonder even what Mr. George Wythe himself would, too. Well, we're not at the end of this book. We are getting close. And when I'm back on the air again with you all next, we're going to talk about the um, legal, more about the legal codes of Virginia for both black and for b- both African Americans and whites. We're also going to learn about um, more about uh, the um, grand uh, reformation behind the legal code system that Mr. With, Mr. Jefferson, and Mr. Pendleton went about transforming. And while all of it was great, I will have to point out now that there were some um, loopholes or measures that still remain the same that were not changed that I do believe probably might have come back and um, that might have um, backfired on Mr. With. Perhaps in part because maybe he never thought that he would have been a victim of unforeseen tragic circumstances. You know, we all would like to believe that that um, that our forefathers died peacefully. While many of them did, uh, there were those who didn't. George Wythe, yes, was one of two signers who died, who sadly died by means of violence. But some of our forefathers did not part on good terms with family members because of loyalties. Um, you know, John Adams, for example. Um, 
disowned one of his sons because of his alcoholism and, and abandoning his family more than once. So we have to remember that even our forefathers were not perfect. They uh, faced several issues from within their own families. It didn't make it right, but what is sad and what we must keep in mind is that um, had Lydia Broadnax been allowed to testify, George With Sweeney would have been found guilty. I don't know if he would have been able to have been hung, but he would have been found guilty. But I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next and uh, sharing with you all more about um, about uh, Virginia's past. And while, yes, it may not always, the past may not always be pretty, but we still need to learn about it. Even um, Ed Gillespie, who ran for governor of Virginia uh, four years ago, made a very uh, valid point, a very successful one, relevant. Virginia has, there have been many a times where Virginia was on the right side of history, but on the other hand, there have been many a times where Virginia was not on the right side of history. I see this as an example. In Bruce Chadwick's I Am Murdered, George With, Thomas Jefferson, and the Killing That Shocked a New Nation, the, the, the court system prohibiting Lydia Broadnecks from testifying against not just so much George With Sweeney, but by, um, but by being able to tell her side of a story to where the person whom she looked after with the utmost respect for the last 20 years was um, was not given uh, the proper justice he deserved. And I see this as something where Virginia at one time was not on the right side of history. There could have been an exception made here, folks. But nobody wanted to do that. I, I know I could talk more and more, folks, but I'm near the end of my uh, time. But thank you for listening, and um, I appreciate you all uh, being uh, faithful listeners. I look forward to being back on the air again with you all here soon. Take care and good night.